0: Oh, damn. I should have, like, written... I want to, I should have written something on my knuckles. Oh,
1: love, hate. You want to do it?
0: Uh, yeah, give me a minute. All right, I'm ready. Okay.
1: Girl boss. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Secret Movie Clubbers. Welcome to Secret Movie Club Podcast 81. Today, for a change of pace, we're actually talking about two movies and no wider, bigger topic, although I'm sure... Things will happen. We're talking about two of my favorite films of all time Charles Lawton's 1955 Night of the Hunter, starring Robert Mitchum, Shelley Winters, Lillian Gish, and 1979, Bob Fosse directed, co written, choreographed All That Jazz, starring Roy Scheider. And ranking John Lithgow and a hilarious supporting part is clearly Bob Fosse's nemesis on Broadway. uh, Who is with us today?
2: It's Daniel.
0: It's me, Carl Lloyd Cruz, the People's Champion.
2: Hello, America. I'm still here You feeling a little wiser? No, I still, I still feel the same since last
1: night And that's to tease, because you're going to hear about it more in our next podcast Secret Movie Club Podcast 82 Where we talk about Invasion USA and personal movie tastes This is Edwin's birthday week So Edwin, we're going to save the song for next pod But happy birthday to you Thank you You're a wonderful guy I wish you your best year yet Secret Movie Club has been blessed to have you. What
3: can I say? You know, it's all—it's uh, all part of the job. And uh... I think if I could just take a moment, what I would say is, "F yourself." <laughs> <laughs> Aren't you? Keep that uncensored. Wow! And Daniel <laughs> Ott coming into his own. I've waited eighty-one episodes. <laughs> Gloves are off. The Daniel <laughs> Ott you knew
1: has shed his skin like a snake. And reveal the diamond viper within Good to have you here, Daniel Thank you, good to be here So, Secret Movie Clubbers, when you hear this podcast We're actually showing a movie I love I don't know why Edwin and I argue all the time about this Since we seem to be agreed on it Other than Edwin just loves Heaven's Gate And I'm not as hot on it But tonight on 35mm, we are showing uh, Michael Cimino's Deer Hunter The Best Picture winner of 1978 It is a tremendous movie Starring Robert De Niro, Meryl Streep John Cazale, Christopher Walken Just this sprawling, amazing epic about America, Vietnam, the veteran experience, the small town industrial experience. It's really sort of a miracle of a movie. And we're showing it on 35 millimeter. And then tomorrow, Saturday, we're doing a Douglas Cirque double feature, All That Heaven Allows, an imitation of life. If you've never seen a Douglas Cirque movie, one, they're just great. They're dope. Two, Douglas Cirque really created a pathway and influenced filmmakers like Rainer Werner Fassbender, which is why we're showing it as we get near the end of our Rainer Werner Or Fassbender year but Fassbender Todd Haynes people probably know a lot Better these days Scorsese Basically Douglas Sirk directed These crazy melodramas in the 1950s That if you just wanted to be entertained you could be Entertained but if you wanted to like just pay A little more attention you'd go Holy moly this guy's talking about LGBTQ issues race Issues American hypocritical Issues political issues And he got them all in with studio Backing so he's sort of the patron Saint god of a lot of filmmakers like How did you do that? Specifically, Fassbender. And then Saturday night, talking about smuggling in a movie no one expected, we're showing Martin Scorsese's Casino on 35mm, which uh, you go there expecting a movie about gangsters in Las Vegas, and you get that, and it's awesome. You also get a three-hour movie on a really ugly divorce and a relationship that never should have happened and being a survivor after really bad life decisions. And you realize, yet again, you're watching a chapter in the autobiography of Martin Scorsese, It's pretty incredible. And uh, next week, uh, we are off, actually, interestingly. It is Thanksgiving weekend, so happy Thanksgiving to everybody. Call your mother. Yeah, please or whoever you consider your mom, your dad, your brother, siblings, however you construct family, we hope you reach out and we love you. You're part of the Secret Movie Club family. I will say that though there are no movies next week, you will get a new podcast. So when you're recovering from the turkey narcosis, you can download that. And also, I just want to put out the word that next Tuesday, Tuesday, November 30th, we're starting up something that I did pre-COVID called Take a Chance Cinema, where at least once a season to start, we're showing a movie that I know many just be me. Although I want to say it's actually selling really well, which makes me super happy and points out something. We're showing the Russian movie, Hard to Be a God. It is three hours, black and white. It's a sci-fi movie about a bunch of astronauts that go to a planet that never got out of the middle ages. And one of them, people start to think he's a God, even though he's trying not to get involved in the society. And uh, it's a very strange movie, a very differently paced movie. But I do actually think, and I feel pretty confident saying this at least objectively i think one of the greatest movies of the 21st century i don't think enough people have seen this movie so i hope you will come see hard to be a god tuesday november 30th come spend your tuesday night watching a three-hour sci-fi russian film we'd love to have you and as always you can write us a community at secretmovieclub.com go to secretmovieclub.com get tickets at eventbrite secret movie club and we would love to have you Two days ago, uh, we showed a double feature, Night of the Hunter and All That Jazz, and it was programmed basically under the series idea of movies that we're thankful for. So they're not nece- it's not themed by anything more I thought than these are two American classics that I'm obsessed with. Somehow they feel unique enough that I want to put them together. I just think they're two great movies. We're going to show them on 35 millimeter, Charles Lawton's Night of the Hunter, Bob Fosse's All That Jazz. And as I was watching them, I actually realized they're linked by something massively unifying that doesn't wouldn't be obvious on the surface, but is super obvious from a filmmaking level. Both of the visionaries behind those movies come from theater and were known for theater. And I hadn't even figured that out. And in fact, you might say, OK, well, yeah, but what? Actually, both those movies are very theatrical. And I hadn't thought about it. Night of the Hunter is very theatrical in its lighting and the choices it makes. And then Bob Fossey's All That Jazz literally is all about the theater and uh, Broadway. So interestingly, those movies are way more linked than I thought, because Night of the Hunter is directed by the actor Charles Lawton, the only movie he ever did. But he brought all of his stage experience to bear, like Orson Welles, like Igmar Bergman, like fassbender i was realizing that a lot of my favorite directors also had very active careers in theater which i'm thinking about but anyway
0: they're also both about (laughs) terrible men who are bad with children and love and leave a lot of women though in very different forms and i would also say they are american films and i think they're both specifically uniquely american in the sense that you can't really remove the american context from the films Like these aren't films that could, you could adapt them, but you would have to change a lot. These are very specific to Night of the Hunter being a, like an American Depression era film and all that jazz being very much so a 1970s New York slash Hollywood movie.
1: Yeah. So that's the funny thing. Watching both movies, I realized, you know, because sometimes you program on instinct and they, I was like, yeah, these feel like they totally go together. But I didn't really overanalyze it uh, other than I was like, I'm curious what people will think. And watching them, you become aware, oh, they are very related in all these interesting ways. Um, So Charles Lawton's Night of the Hunter Is a 1955 movie That confused a lot of people when it came out It's actually based on a novel It stars Robert Mitchum as a psychotic Criminal and actually based on A real serial killer I found out if people Want to actually look it up but basically He imitates a preacher And preys on poor women Who he thinks have a lot of money He clearly has some kind of sexual Compulsion that the movie touches on Without diving too deep in it although there's Some scenes that are pretty explicit and uh, Mitchum basically ropes in small towns with his God talk. And everybody thinks that he's a holy man because he knows they're going to fall for it. But basically, he happens to be cellmates with a guy who has hidden $10,000. Mitchum wants to get it. So he seduces the widow after this guy is given the electric chair, hanged, actually. He wants to get it the kids. I don't want to spoil too much, but eventually something happens fairly early on in the movie that leaves the kids running away from Robert Mitchum. And then the movie takes a crazy left turn where he pursues them across the Ohio River Valley. It's basically around the Great Lakes and Ohio and New York and up there. And the children are completely on their own until they run into Lillian Gish, who plays a woman who takes in orphaned children. And then suddenly it becomes a good and evil against uh, Lillian Gish and Robert Mitchum. But a very hard movie to explain. And it's suffice it to say, in the 1950s, a lot of people were like, what is this? And over time, it has become a touchstone movie that many filmmakers, and I include myself and it, view as one of the most influential movies and personal favorite movies for them. This movie is in my top 35 movies of all time.
0: It's also one of my favorite movies. It's my favorite movie from the 1950s, Mitchum specifically is incredible in it. He's able to switch between terrifying and cartoonish Big Bad Wolf at like a moment's notice in a way that totally works. I think the cinematography is some of the most beautiful black-and-white cinematography I've ever seen in any movie. (laughs) There's some use of silhouettes throughout the movie, especially some stuff towards the end when he is pursuing them. There's a shot I used actually for our November trailer of the silhouette of him riding a horse on the horizon and it's framed by the main kid
1: inside the barn looking out at it i think it's just beautiful shot by stanley cortez who did magnificent ambersons and that shot connor specifically just like total trivia tidbit was accomplished the same way they accomplished the ending of casablanca it's a small person on a mule in a sound stage, so that basically you could get that depth of focus. It's not actually Mitchum, and they're only about 20 feet from the barn. The score, too, I feel like is beautiful and haunting.
3: Same camp. Let's we'll just, you know, keep up the love. I think it's sort of an unbelievable achievement. The fact that Charles Lawton did one movie, and this is the movie, is both sad, but also, like, what an insane legacy to have, like, just a singular piece of art in the spectrum exist this way. Beyond that, like, talking about the cinematography, first time I experienced this was back in... Film school, but it was specifically played to talk about writing structure and also the cinematography and why. So I think there was a shift in the fifties into color film and the like. But what's being done with the black and white cinematography and the super low key lighting that has like kind of a noir flavor? But I don't think that was the intention yet. I don't know. I think it's it's very substantial and I think the theatricality of it plays so much into the lighting that it sort of lets it operates in a way that I I think is is kind of second to none and should be looked at for people wanting to make stuff. The underwater shot, I think, is unbelievable. You see it, and even if you forget where you saw it, it just kind of lives with you. The woman that Robert Mitchum's character marries um, is the kid's mother, and he murders her and dumps the body in the lake. I think with the implication that she's supposed to look like she's run off with someone, and him being a preacher, he can sort of convince the town that's a thing, but there's a shot of her underwater tied up that lingers for a really long time. I think there's a cut, but in my brain, it seems way too long. It's just kind of this insane image to see. And there's a fisherman that finds the body. And there's a great piece of score during that, too. It's super expressionist. And again, the shadow work and all these little details that kind of are peppered through thing. I also realized on this revisit that it's the same plot as um, a series of unfortunate events, which made me laugh with like a creepy a creepy man who sort of comes into i want robert mitchum to play that character now count all off <laughs> <laughs> it's a tight 90 which is a gift mitchum's great the pacing's great the writing is super tight and i think the surprises are built in where they don't feel like cheap twists they feel like instrumental to the way it's being told and yeah i i would just rave i don't really have any anything interesting to say about it it's 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 great it's a good picture. pretty pretty fun and
2: wild motion picture I was on a Criterion run during my high school years. And Night of the Hunter was one of the movies that I grabbed on my Criterion uh, uh, madness. And um, I don't know. it's something weird about Mitchum playing these kind of, like, psychotic roles. You know, he did in K-Fear. He did in a, a couple other films. But in, in some odd way, he plays it so well that I don't even care if it's typecast. As long as I get to see that kind of performance in a movie. And I think Night of the Hunter is probably one of my favorites because he is super terrifying.
0: It's his own favorite, I'm pretty sure.
2: The scene where uh, he's trying to get the kids and the and the and the, old, and the ladies there with the shotgun and he just pops up like, like that was funny, but yet spooky. And runs away like a hyena. But uh, another favorite moment of mine that I, I occasionally do often is uh, I think it's at the beginning of the movie where he's like traveling in his car and he's like talking to the Lord. Like, Lord, better help me find a way out of here. And then that's like, I, I, I do that occasionally, you know. You know, say, Lord, gotta get me out of here. You wanna kill me on the road? Do it now, Lord. <laughs> I know this movie is later referenced in uh, Dazed and Confused and uh, Do the Right Thing. I forgot, what's the reference in Dazed and Confused? Ben Affleck is uh, chasing the two kids and he uh, chases them to their house, but uh, the kid's mom, like, comes out with a shotgun and, like, points it right at uh, Ben Affleck, which was uh, pretty badass. I love that a lot. It's sad that that director. Never made it because this is a movie that no one was ready for. It's time.
3: It was was like pretty critically panned when it came
1: out. Yeah, I was reading that Charles Lawton was actually prepping Norman Mailer's Naked and the Dead, which would have been a World War II thin red line type picture, which would have been fascinating. He was prepping it as a second feature. And I read this and and I, I, I would encourage people to read it because I don't want to botch the details, so I'm not. But he said he actually discovered... He didn't love directing Because coming from theater And this is true I've directed theater And I love directing theater You can constantly change the play Which is actually very true You know, many directors And I'm one of the directors uh, Who does this Will sit and watch every performance And will take notes And then what you do At the end of the night Before everybody leaves Okay, okay, notes for tomorrow You know, hey You hit this line this way You're cross here I think we're going to try this We're going to try that You're constantly And Lawton said that Once he was done with production He couldn't do any of that and he was just locked in with the footage he had and he just didn't enjoy it. He didn't enjoy that it was footage he could no longer change. And he just decided that whenever he did directing, he'd save it for theater.
0: I think it's worth noting too, the bit that Edwin was talking about that's referencing and Do the Right Thing is that Robert Mitchum, as a criminal, has these tattoos on his hands, on his knuckles that say love and hate. But as a preacher posing as one, he's created this story. That's what I assume is the backstory. Maybe he got it intentionally to tell this story but he has these knuckle tattoos love and hate and he tells this story about you know the right hand representing love and the left hand representing hate and the struggle between love and hate and that's a great moment that's like revisited because early on in the movie you have all these characters who are kind of suckered in by him and are just loving that story and then I love it at the end when he tries to start telling it and Lillian Gish is like No. No.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Just go and see it. You're going to get everything you need to get out of it by watching it. As much as I love talking about it, I'm somebody who loves movies that are filled with tonal shifts, and I think it's very hard to do that, but this is one of those films where if you've never seen it, you have no idea where it's going. As long as people don't spoil it for you. Even what Daniel said about Shelley Winters, who, by the way, gives probably her best performance, in my opinion, in this film, as uh, the mother who realizes that Robert Mitchum is sucker her and taken advantage of her loneliness. I mean, it's heartbreaking, the final scene she has. Even if you know that turn, it does not prepare you suddenly. It becomes Mark Twainish almost. And you feel like you're watching this dark folk tale. And then it becomes Lillian Gish comes in and it becomes simultaneously a tale of Christianity and a tale of like Mother Goose and the Big Bad Wolf. And in fact, if anyone's a Stephen King fan and you've heard Connor and I talk about it, I wouldn't be surprised if Stephen King cribbed the basic structure for the stand. Randall Flagg is very similar to Robert Mitchum's preacher. And then Mother Abigail is very similar to Lillian Gish. The one story I want to tell is this. This guy came out after the movie this last Saturday, and I think he was Russian and he just started talking to me so that he has this cowboy hat and these glasses and kind of a weird get-up that looks a little cowboyish, also a little Native Americanish and he says in a Russian accent which I'm not going to do or some kind of Eastern European accent, man, that movie was crazy you know I, I I don't know how to feel about it I'm glad I came, but it's really about psychosis and he was like, because you know clearly it's about how capitalism and Christianity can't coexist. The psychosis at the heart of America is that everyone says they believe in Jesus, and Jesus clearly says that nobody owns anything, and yet people say that they also believe in individuality and private ownership, which is completely in contradiction with Jesus. Then I thought he was going to praise communism, which I wasn't going to go in for, but I stay, I always stay silent. I mean, I'm I'm always going to take it in. And he said, but you know, that's the problem with communism too. He was like in capitalism, you privatize things for the benefit of the individual. In communism, you privatize things for the benefit of the so-called state. Either way, you're claiming ownership of something that you can never own, which is why I once tried to join the Iroquois nation, because I think that Native Americans fully understood that you don't own anything. You're just simply a steward for the next generation. And this is pure monologue. And then he said, I want to tell you one more thing. I really appreciate what Secret Movie Club's doing. It's like a messenger. One time I was down with the homeless here in L.A., and this man appeared to me just smelling of feces, but he had these piercing eyes. And he looked at me and he said... Some people will say they are of God and they are not of God. Some people will say, I am not of God and they will be of God, but they will be messengers. And it is not the words of the message, but how that message touches your soul. And if that message touches your soul, that is a messenger from the universe. And then I looked and he was gone. And he said, and I just wanted to tell you that story. And then he left and I was like, what, what just happened? The final (laughs) thing he said was Jesus taught about being humble because it's only by being humble that you can be compassionate. But humility and compassion are the two hardest traits And almost no one can do it Because of their belief structures and their egotism And he said if I had Just not listened to this guy who smelled of feces Because I was like I want to get away from this weird homeless dude I never would have gotten this message But you have to be willing to be humble And say well maybe this guy's going to tell me something interesting And he just said humility and compassion That's what it's all about And then he left and I was like who was that man The ghost of Sid Grauman (laughs) 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 <laughs> his name he said his name was Steve. Steve, I wanna thank you for blowing my mind you were speaking my language.
3: Yeah, for Mitchum's performance, I think he's super famous for his film Noir. And this is sort of this like someone described it as like a gothic melodrama, which I think is really fair, and I think his subtlety in this performance is what makes it work and makes him so effectively scary and is very different than the I think the Robert Mitchum we sometimes think of.
1: For people who are versed in Mitchum is Mitchum made a career out of pretending to be a very cool, nonchalant sort of indifferent. He was great and he had charisma, but this movie, he's acting like you watch this film and you're like, oh, Bob Mitchum can do anything. I don't know why it was Charles Lawton who got it out of him. The thing I love about the movie is it's an attack on things that are, as Connor was saying at the outset, that are intrinsically American and hypocritical that I'm very sensitive to. One of them is that a lot of people profess to be Christian and they're really just out to rip people off. And the movie um, makes that explicit because Mitchum is pretending to be a preacher. And it shows people who pretend to practice Christianity like the old woman who, you know, you don't hate her, but she kind of messes everybody's life up with her preaching and her telling, you know, behave this way. And then at the end, suddenly she's screaming for Mitchum to be lynched and she's almost drunk with like violent rage. And I don't think that's any mistake that charles lawton is making the point that these same people who profess to believe in jesus are the same people who are going to string you up if uh, you make them uncomfortable you f them and i think it's a very uncomfortable movie to deal with
0: there's some interesting like sexual repression stuff with her character too in that scene where she's like women shouldn't enjoy sex that's a man's thing like i've never enjoyed sex i just
1: think of my canning but she's looking at Robert Mitchum, and she's totally into him.
0: Yeah, she needs to get laid. <laughs> Her <laughs> husband's bad at
1: it. And I think there's something, I, I, people should know that Charles Lawton was famously bisexual, uh, mostly, and um, he married Elsa Lancaster, and my grandparents used to point out, because they lived in the only mobile home park in the Pacific Palisades, but when we would drive on PCH, if anyone goes to Patrick's Roadhouse, or they know that area, a little Santa Monica Canyon, Elsa Lancaster had a house, and Charles Lawton had a house. They never lived together. And so Supposedly they would say hi to each other And Charles Lawton was able to have his boyfriends over And then at the same time they had the same zip code address But I think you also get the eyes of someone who's not only British But also somebody who by his very lifestyle in the 30s, 40s and 50s Would be more attuned to doublespeak and hypocrisy And I just think Charles Lawton brings a lot to his view of what he's doing our next movie, interestingly, initially would seem very dissimilar, and then the more you think about it, you're like, actually, there are a lot of similarities here. And that's Bob Fosse's 1979 premature, as it turned out, epithet for his own life, all that jazz. In the movie, which Bob Fosse co-wrote and is very much in the style of Fellini's Eight and a Half, he even got Fellini's cinematographer of Eight and a Half to shoot it. It's a very thinly veiled autobiography of Bob Fosse himself, a Broadway choreographer named Joe Gideon, and the mid 70s is taking tons of speed cheating not only on his wife who he's still married to but on his girlfriend who he has just a chronic womanizer speed user chain smoker famous broadway director choreographer also famous movie director a horrible father even though he loves his daughter and is trying to be a better and you basically seeing a very self-destructive man who at the same time is wonderfully constructive and bob fossey shows this man in the middle of a play And then he suffers a heart attack And basically the movie charts everything through to his death But Bob Fosse would actually outlive the movie for seven years And direct one more film, Star 80 But it is very much him dealing with I think looking back on his life, thinking maybe I could go at any moment. And yet the movie's totally joyous, filled with musical numbers.
2: To get good Bob Fosse picture. I generally love the movie for what it is. I, I think it's one of uh, Bob Fosse's last great films he's ever done. Now, Star 80 is okay and all, but... You can't be all that jazz. Oh
1: yeah, all that jazz is hands down my favorite Fosse, Personally. I know some people would say cabaret, but and are you a Lenny guy? I'm a Lenny guy. I love Lenny.
2: Lenny's Lenny's frickin' amazing. And I saw a five million print trailer last night. So uh I'm in the I'm in the Lenny dust Hoffman mood right now, so you're in that Lenny lane. It's amazing how much Roy Scheider's character is portrayed much of Bob Fosse and it's very scary how much of a how horrible, horrible person he was. But, I mean, he's doing his best to make a Broadway show.
0: Joe Gideon is working on staging a musical and cutting a movie at the same time. They have fictional names in it. I think New York, L.A. and the stand-up. But it's Chicago, the musical, and Lenny, the film. It is a very kind of warts-and-all portrayal, and I really like the movie. It is kind of funny, though, that he's just like man, I had a lot of sex with a lot of women. Like, feel, <laughs> <laughs> like sometimes it feels a little bit like he's bragging about it. He's he's maybe a little proud sometimes of just how many women he slept with. Yeah, he's
1: not that repentant in certain moments.
0: He's repentant about the way he treats specific people, but he's not really repentant about that. And it does feel a little bit like, all right, like, cool, this guy f- <laughs> <laughs> But But I, I really like it. This is the second time I saw it. It's a movie... I want to revisit again. I feel like both times I've watched it, I've really, really liked it, but it hasn't quite been a favorite. I don't know what. It, I don't know if there's anything there that's missing for me. I think maybe it's just not quite getting there. But like Roy Scheider is so good in it. The music is so good. Like I want like an actual version on Spotify I can listen to of that version of Bye Bye Love they're singing at the end. And yeah, that ending. I love some of the other people in it. Jessica Lange as this ethereal like angel of death. There's a lot in it that's like intentionally, obviously intentionally creepy in interesting ways. A lot of almost like subtle horror imagery. I also just realized is this,
1: this this actress's name is Leland Palmer?
0: I know, Twin Peaks. Did they intentionally name the character Leland Palmer after the actress? I've
1: thought the same thing, but I, I can't back it up or not. Lynch does that. I
0: know, well, I know Gordon Cole
1: is from Sunset Boulevard. You know, um, Jeffrey in Blue Velvet? is a riff on LB Jeffries from Rear Window. So, I mean, Lynch does those things, but I I couldn't tell you. I mean, maybe he just loved all that jazz and Leland Palmer.
3: (laughs) That actress. It's a good picture. Uh, (laughs) I have like this thing where when I'm on an airplane, I'm either sound asleep or I'm going to watch just the most emotionally devastating thing I can find. (laughs) And someone, I remember hearing, I I had never seen all that jazz, but people were like, oh, you know, prep for it when you watch it. And I was like, this is perfect. Like, I feel miserable on an airplane. Let's let's get into it. And airplanes don't censor things. Like, some airlines have, like, proper aspect ratios, and they don't censor things anymore like they used to, which is always a treat, depending on who you're sitting by, because who knows what will be viewable as you watch this. And this movie has some stuff that's a little uncomfortable to share with neighbors you don't know. Uh, in an airplane capacity, in a theater, different. I think we're all on the same page. But, no, I really loved it. I think we've talked a lot about the great stuff I agree with. I think the editing is... Second to none, I saw that it won the editing Oscar and it makes sense because it's it's directed. I wouldn't say it's a musical, but Fosse directs it in a capacity that he's so clearly understanding of what a great movie musical does in terms of the choreography and the camera work with the editing play up to sort of the things that are unique to filmmaking in that regard. And so it's this theatrical performance happening in a, in a theater, but is directed in a way that is showcasing sort of how filmmaking can add to this or what it can use that's specific to that medium that I think is fascinating going into this and knowing that it was sort of this autobiographical, it feels like a half measure because it does like, you know, like I'm going to make a thing about myself, but I'm going to put Roy Scheider as my, he's going to be in it. I kind of agree with Connor. It feels like half critical of self, but also half of it. You're like, I say, you know, things are bad, but you also seem like you were doing pretty good. (laughs) Him sort of coming to terms with like being a, a turd and kind of this misogynist, but, also, like also sort of winking and like, "But look what I gotta do, so there's like a very hard line to walk there. I kind of got over it because I think everyone thinks that his character in it is awful and has to like kind of earn this respect. But I think for me, my only other critique in that regard is the stuff about like sort of the meditation on death that becomes kind of this the last hour is so powerful. I think that really is enveloping and, and made me cry. And it's such, again, a unique like use of film to tell the story, sort of really tapping into like this unique quality of it. But having like Jessica Lang and stuff as a, an angel, the like moments like that were kind of off to me and I couldn't tell if it was just because of sort of forgetting this like realized dreams that he keeps having, but also this like so there's like a dream state and like this almost like spiritual dream state that are sort of fighting for control. That's super interesting. But I'd like to watch it again to sort of get that to focus in on those aspects to feel like to wrap my head around it. I mean, it's what is it? it's pushing two and a half hours. It doesn't feel like it. And the way that it just chops away at your I don't even know the best way to describe it. That like last pitch where you realize sort of what's going on just gradually you just feel worse and worse and worse. And it's one of those, um, I was out with our other secret movie clubber, Josh, we were sort of cleaning up for the night and people were walking out of the movie. And it's the type of thing that if you haven't had seen it, an audience emerges and they're not speaking or they say they come out and they're like, "Jeez," and they're just sort of there's the silence as their little circles form to start talking about it. And it's kind of the greatest sign of something just happened in that theater that I wish I was a part of. I weirdly
0: had like a hard time driving home afterwards because I felt genuinely kind of disoriented.
1: I'm obsessed with this movie and I grow ever obsessed with it. I think you're, you're all hitting on something interesting. You know, Scorsese points this out as one of his favorite recent movies. It's almost a version of Unforgiven, Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven, by which I mean this. Unforgiven both claims to be demystifying the Western, but it's also simultaneously mythologizing the Western. So that at the end of that movie, Clint Eastwood's character, yes, you've seen him warts and all. But he also kicks ass in the last act. Reconstructive. Yeah. When you see all that jazz, it is demythologizing Bob Fosse, but it's also mythologizing Bob Fosse. And I think that when you're a filmmaker, I mean, everyone's different, obviously, but when you see a Bob Fosse, you almost want to think like, I'm like a Bob Fosse. (laughs) I'm this wildly talented, self-destructive, you know, as Connor was saying, like womanizing loved by women around the world, struggling with my psyche, you know, and so there's a romantic notion buried within what is claimed to be an unromantic movie and I think that people of artistic temperaments gravitate towards the film I'm obsessed with the film because of a certain romanization of a self-destructive lifestyle you know whereas I think that if you're not a filmmaker you're not an artist you look at that and you can you can see the BS and the truth even within the movie itself which is trying to put forward a you know no BS policy so I do think there's a tension I actually came to the realization fully this time that it is a movie musical and that Bob Fosse is actually very cleverly reworking the rules of a Broadway musical. You have the opening number, which always has to be a stunner. That's the on Broadway casting call. If anybody here is a huge fan of Disney musicals, you know that Little Mermaid or Beauty and the Beast always has to begin with like the main character going through town or something. And it's like everybody ends up and or Book of Mormon or whatever, or South Park, the musical does the same thing. And it's literally everybody you're going to see in the movie and and Fosse does that. Then you have to have a midpoint musical number before the intermission, so that people like go out into the intermission on an up before the second act. And you get that with the air erotica sequence, where he previews the Chicago musical number. Then you have musical numbers you don't even realize are musical numbers, like Anne ranking and the daughter doing the number in his apartment. And that's like the classic second act Before the climax number Then you go into a fugue state And your climax or your finale Always has to be the best And literally you get three musical numbers His wife sings, his girlfriend sings His daughter sings Then you get the Ben Vereen Bye-bye love finale Which is, in my opinion, the best number of the whole thing It's literally Bob Fosse collapsing everything And it's cinema and musical It's on a stage, but he shows people with cameras He goes up to death and you literally kind of get a 2001-esque conflation Of everything you've seen in the movie in the final number And I just think that on an editing level On a character level On a performance level On a music level It's wonky a little bit when he goes into the hospital I actually personally might cut 5 or 10 minutes out of the picture um, That's just me I, I think there's 5 or 10 minutes Somehow it feels a little long to me
0: I think especially the stuff when he's like kind of frolicking around in the hospital it, you,
1: there's this, And also the, the inner cutting he does with the Lenny Monologue about death There's a point where I'm like I, I get it <laughs> I, You know and, and then it, it happens again But I mean again I'm not going to touch a frame Of all that jazz because the feeling I get At the end is incredible and I'm obsessed With it has there been a movie For you where somebody portrayed a character that maybe they were very close to but didn't like you were saying connor maybe romanticize it a little bit like really nailed an honest portrayal sort of goldilocks not too mean not too easy really nailed it
0: i think what i was talking about earlier i was being semi-facetious i think it works in the movie's favor to a certain degree because it does make the movie more of like Weirdly and up for how emotionally devastating it is, so I don't necessarily have a huge issue with it.
3: It's I mean, there's this sort of an interesting thing because this is like a semi-autobiographical to a degree, so you have that weight of that on the film's shoulders. But I think portrayals of narcissistic a holes, there's been a few. I like, I feel like Social Networks one, like Mark Zuckerberg is is completely unlikable, but you're <laughs> so engaged by. I guess that's maybe that's Aaron Sorkin's sort of. Shtick is he's good at writing these people that you should. If you knew them in real life, they would not be your friends, but they're so engaging on screen. So it's like there's been kind of a, a few of the last 10 years of that trying to capture that dynamic of people that you should not like yet, like almost anti heroes within these dramatic things.
1: I'm going to say something so obvious, I don't even know that it should stay in the podcast, but actually, the movie that it was based on, Eight and a Half. I actually think that Fellini. Strangely, you see what makes Fellini charismatic, but you also see what drives his wife crazy. And at the end of the movie, it's not actually a particularly, it's a very honest ending. If anyone's ever seen Eight and a Half, it's Fellini celebrating his life, but also him and his wife are like, we're going to have to muddle along for like, we haven't
3: figured this out yet. And I think it, all that jazz is pretty close to that. Could you put like almost famous? Because it's it's somewhat, if I remember correctly, isn't it somewhat semi-autobiographical to Cameron Crowe's life?
1: Oh, very autobiographical.
3: I feel like he's generally portrayed as very likable in it. I mean, he's sort of like He's the audience surrogate, but it's about so many other people. Or um, Spike Lee's Crooklyn sort of feels in the same vein of pulling that off without coming across as, like, egotistical.
1: Like, I'm a huge Mean Streets fan, and Mean Streets is a very thinly veiled... Conflation of Scorsese's father and brother. Literally, they were named uh, Charlie and John. Scorsese's dad is Charlie, and his, bro- his uncle was John. And Scorsese said his dad was always bailing his brother out, and he realized when he'd made Mean Streets he was really making a movie about his father and his uncle, but also about Scorsese at that time and a friend of his, a cousin he had. But the thing I think that I struggle with, and I don't want to get too into it because I would say it ad nauseum, is I'm aware in Mean Streets that he's glorifying Catholicism a little bit, And I think for people who are not Catholics, you know, Catholics have this thing they do where to be martyrs, you know, we're like, I've got to expiate my sins by doing all this. And, you know, you get really dramatic. And, you know, I think people who don't buy into all that stuff just see somebody rationalizing both their good and their bad behavior in ridiculous ways that people who aren't they don't need that belief structure. They're not part of that belief structure. They're like, you know, here's this cat getting overdramatic again and simultaneously justifying his bad behavior while he's beating himself up about it or herself up about it. I don't know how Mean Streets plays. I can't because I'm in it. I'm a practicing Catholic, but I, I'm aware of, um, I
3: think, some of its BS, too. I can see some of the BS of the the Graham Greene. Anyway, it's a whole thing. In the next year, we have two big filmmakers releasing these sort of coming-of-age tales that are, I think, somewhat semi autobiographical with PTA's Licorice Pizza and Spielberg's. Yeah, so we have this, I think it's very interesting to sort of see filmmakers at different points in their life reflecting on things and how they portray even if it's mostly fiction how they portray how they thought of themselves in that period and can they walk a line between honesty and like nostalgia but also like you know you can't be just the most miserable person to watch
0: <laughs> I was just gonna ask who is John Lithgow supposed to be
1: I believe the director's name is Michael Bennett who directed Dream Girls. <laughs> I mean, that stuff is is actually... I really struggle with that part of the movie because it's so fun and catty. And it it really, on a dramatic level, Lithgow is delicious. But you're like, is this fair to Michael Bennett? Was Michael Bennett really like that? (laughs) (laughs) Because Michael Bennett just seems... Like all the miserable aspects Of a narcissistic director Without necessarily the charming Charismatic aspects that Fosse has Yeah <laughs> So I, I don't know how fair that is But I do love that stuff And then that line got such a big laugh Where she's like next to Joe Gideon You're my favorite director on Broadway
0: And then she's like sorry your last Your, your musical was a flop And
1: you feel Fosse behind the camera Being like ah, 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 <laughs> Suck it <laughs> Michael Bennett <laughs> Pop culture, final thoughts. Edwin,
2: it's your birthday. It's your soapbox. Been a busy guy. I saw Godzilla at the Alamo Draft House, which you missed the opportunity to do a Godzilla series, Craig. So shame on you.
3: Actually, we did a huge one years ago.
2: Yeah, two years ago, which sold out routinely. You didn't do all of them. You didn't do all of them. But I'll let that slide. But Godzilla 84 was incredible. How many did we do, Edwin? Like 20, probably. Uh Uh-huh. Did we do Godzilla
1: versus Destroyer? Yeah. Oh, we did. Did we do Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah 1992?
2: You didn't do Godzilla Final Wars, which should have been the ending of the series, but no, you didn't. And I sure Sony had a 35mm print. I failed you. I failed. The whole the series was a failure because of that omission. So, yeah, Godzilla 84, very anti-Reagan. And I'll say, hey, f*** you, Reagan. You suck. Yeah, Godzilla 84 was great. I loved it. Um, I saw Straight Time for the first time. man. Dustin Hoffman as Eddie Bunker. What a performance. That was a terrific movie. A great L.A. movie, too. Harry Dean's in that one, right? Yeah, he is. Oh, my God. Harry Dean is sat in one of his most brilliant roles he's ever done in his career. I saw Michael Mann's Thief blew me out of the water. Most stylistically beautifully shot, well-lit movie I've ever seen in my life. James Kahn, in the role of his life being a badass Chicago dude. And that final scene... Is incredible. Michael Mann for his first movie knows how to do a shootout. And then I watched George Lucas' uh, THX 1138, which was
3: okay. I <laughs> was very busy this week. I didn't see a lot of stuff. I did watch with Lisi. She showed me "But I'm a Cheerleader," a great movie from '99 about a um, cheerleader who's sent to a, a conversion home to deal with. It's like, I think they call it sexual redirection. Uh, it's this incredible, like satirical comedy starring. Natasha Leone and Clea Duval and it's fantastic. I saw Taylor Swift's new short film, All Too Well. Edwin Will love shot on 35mm from her featuring her 10 minute version of All Too Well. It's very beautiful. It has I like watched it to like maybe poke fun and then it was kind of taken. I was like, oh, this is actually a very effective short film. I also saw the Eternals, or just Eternals Apologies, which is Marvel's latest and I didn't realize I blacklist most Marvel stuff so I can, or just most stuff that's in series so I can kind of go into things fresh, but it's got a pretty negative, I think it's the lowest ranked um, Marvel thing. It's it's directed by Chloe Zhao and I was kind of surprised. I think it was pretty good. Like some of the stuff in it is, this will be interesting to sort of dissect because I think this feels like a very much a director trying to do something. And I don't know if she was, wasn't able to do it because of Marvel, because it seems like they let her make, because a lot of it feels like a Chloe Zhao movie, but a lot of it feels like just having to kind of fight against what is expected of a movie at this scale in terms of like structure and stuff.
0: I wonder if it's a situation where the turnaround on something like this, you have like somebody like a James Gunn who comes from a genre background, who's maybe able to more intuitively structure things in a way. And Chloe Zhao, who comes from a more sort of art, drama background not having the sort of instincts to because i think the worst parts of it are some of the like messy structure stuff in terms of like the secondary like conflicts and characters and the best stuff is the stuff that feels like it's carried over from Things like Nomadland, which are some of the more big ideas, and specifically the Vistas. I actually rewatched it in IMAX yesterday and liked it a lot more. Any of the stuff with the Celestials, I don't want to say what happens in it, but there's a big sequence towards the middle where Cersei, the main character, gets like taken up into space and just told all this stuff, and it's incredible looking.
3: Yeah, there's a sense of scale that I think some filmmakers don't quite nail, and I think she really nails and when it's focused in character, I think it's it's really interesting. But you can sometimes tell that four different people took a crack at this script, and there's a lot of like competing ideas. But I'd be curious to see how this how Eternals ages. And I really hope she gets to return if she wants to to make something that isn't doesn't have to sort of set up a thing, can just kind of exist. Because uh, there's a lot of really interesting things here, and I'm kind of surprised by the uh, reaction to it.
0: It's good proof in the future when people are like, "Well, Disney pays the critics to." give positive reviews (laughs) it's like well why didn't they do it this time and it should be noted that the audience reviews are actually pretty good if you go to rotten tomatoes not only does it have the worst critics reviews on rotten tomatoes but i think it has the most divisive between the two because the audience reviews are actually very good but uh yeah i didn't really do anything special this week so you can watch me Play video games and find out other stuff about me at twitch.tv slash Connor Cruz. I
1: love to read. And what I do is I read something in print. And then when I'm driving, I I audio listen to something. And I finally am on cyber security. <laughs> Interestingly, my whole listening to history of the last 10,000 years, I knew for a while I wanted to end, at least for now, uh, you're always learning, but on cyber security. And I've just started this book called The Art of Invisibility. Has anyone read that book? It's written by a guy you know, it's, it's sort of a, it's a total catch me if you can story. This guy now is paid to try to break into government and corporate, Cybersecurity systems because he was The world's he was like on the run as a hacker Total nail figure and now Now he's getting paid to you know test The weak points stress points and he, he Talks about all these really Fascinating ways that hackers But you know it, it's always Evolving because people learn and then It changes and they try to cut off that little Shortcut or that weakness but he was saying That one of the ways they used to get and I was Like that's brilliant and I never would have thought about that Because my mind doesn't work that way one of the ways that earlier hackers would be able to hack people's accounts was just by the password retrieval method. And they would just, they would find out someone's email and then they would just be like, oh, I forgot the password. And what they would do is they'd be able to like somehow go and get a new password. And then they could take that password and affect everything by that email. They were also saying that weirdly, even though people know that in this day and age, you should have encryption of at least 25 figures or more. That, did you know this, Daniel? That the head of Sony during the North Korean Sony hack, do you know what his password was? Sony ML3. That was his password, Sony ML three. And they were able to figure it out really quickly. And because he was the head of Sony, they then had access to everything. And again, that's not knocking him. I mean, you know, there, but for the grace of God, go I. And I mean that I, but listening to this stuff, it just makes me aware that we live in this world where, and I think this is a beautiful thing. We all think differently. I mean, look at the four of us here, but it fascinates me when people will think of things and I get really scared because I'm like, My mind doesn't work that way. I never would have thought. And yet that's such an easy way to gain access. And there are all these dark arts ways of getting people to reveal information about themselves. All these dark arts ways to, you know, do this, that or the other thing. I think if you can just go, man, there are all these ways of thinking in the world that I'm just dumb on. And I'm just going to be open. That there are different ways Of thinking about the world And human behavior That I just don't have The intelligence to think about But if I could learn about it maybe I could be better with myself and better with the world. But you have to be humble and just know from the beginning that you don't know anything. And that the way you think has nothing to do with the way the world really works and all the intelligences in the world that you'll never be able to grasp. So listening to this cybersecurity book just yet again has smacked me to the ground with how stupid I am, but I want to be open to learning about it. So there you go, guys. I don't know what that's about, but I'm sharing that with you. As Secret Movie Clubbers, it was wonderful to have you for another pod. And next week's pod, the Thanksgiving pod, the Black Friday pod, we will be about one of Edwin's beloved movies, the canon classic Invasion USA, which Chuck Norris co-wrote with his brother, Aaron Norris, directed by Joseph Zito, who also directed Missing in Action, and Friday the 13th, part four, the final chapter. Edwin, if you've listened to any podcast, you know that Edwin loves canon films. He loves Invasion USA. He loves 80s action. So we're going to be talking about that, about Edwin, about his personal movie taste, and all of our personal movie tastes. As always, this episode was Edited by our chief creative content officer Connor Lloyd Cruz and you can always Write us at community at secretmovieclub.com Get tickets at Eventbrite Tonight we're showing Michael Cimino's The Deer Hunter Come see it. It actually is A very Thanksgiving flavored movie Oddly, but it's also just one of the great American movies of the 1970s And then tomorrow we're doing two Douglas Cirque Movies, All That Heaven Allows And Imitation of Life. Imitation of Life is my Personal favorite. I weep uncontrollably The last 20 minutes or so of that Picture. And then we're doing Martin. Scorsese's Casino, which interestingly is one of the movies post Goodfellas that just gets better and better in people's estimations. Uh, At the time it came out, a lot of people said, oh, he's just doing Goodfellas again. And now a lot of people say they think it's as good as Goodfellas or better. Goodfellas is still my favorite, but I, I actually think Casino gets better in my estimation too. I think it's a dynamite Scorsese picture. So we're doing that on 35. And that's it. Thank you guys. As always, Edwin, happy birthday. We love you. And uh, I'll see you guys soon. So take care. Yes. Yes. Goodbye, citizens.